We're in a really, really serious text, and that's why I'm sitting down, uh, because we can, we're in a really, really awesome, exciting text in John chapter 11. Uh, next week, of course, we'll actually go through the Christmas story to some degree. Uh, but there is a, we get so used to reading this, if you're familiar with John chapter 11, that we really kind of sterilize out the pain. And uh, the songs we sang today, we chose to sing, were songs that were completely influenced by this text. The idea of not really understanding, going through a really rough time and somehow trusting God through it. We're going to get halfway through this story today just to make it even more fun. Uh, and so the, the real exciting kind of, yay, we win part, we wait until the 31st, uh, which is kind of exciting because, to be honest, we've actually based our ministry on the latter portion of this text. But I want to read at least, if you would, we'll read, and, and we'll see if we're going to even get that far. But let's read the first 37 verses. Would you read that with me? We're in John chapter 11. And I ask you to be patient as we go through this because I really think the Lord really wants to do some serious work in our hearts today. And we prayed some really weird things when we sang today. I mean, if you sang along with me, I can't get away with it because unless you guys sing really loud, I have to sing the line. But um, things like asking God to break our heart, but the result of that would be to honor him and to worship him in the proper way. Uh, it comes from, by the way, um, a story in the next chapter, which is referred to here. The idea that uh, we're going to trust God even if we don't understand. I mean, it's a very lovely thing to sing. But the hardest time to do that is, if we're going to be honest, when you really don't understand. And when that actually means something more than just idealistically. And the reason I say that is I want this text to impact us. I want it to actually do more than just inform us. I want it to actually minister to our hearts. But here's the danger is that we're in England. And in England, we are very careful to keep our cards at our chest. We don't really, and look, and I'm not asking for you all to be blobbering messes here. Well, I don't think we have enough tissues. But I am asking God to do something that's real therapy. And for a lot of you in this room, without me even having to be told, I can see it on your faces, you want that. And for good reason. But if you come to church and all we really get is kind of a cool little anecdote that we can kind of take with us on a handle that maybe we can use somewhere and put on a plaque like a cat poster, man, then church is lame. If that's really what we get out of it, maybe we get to sing a couple songs and get hyped up for a minute and then, yeah, that's a cool expression. I can probably use that somewhere. But if this really is the, in the hospital God intended then we really need to be able to come in at the time when we really, really don't want to come in, when we really need to. So I'm asking you to look at it with fresh eyes, the ones that actually are attached to your heart. John chapter 11, verse 1. Read it with me. But Lord, please, would you open up the eyes of our hearts? Open up that part, Lord, we keep hidden, even from ourselves, the part that really needs to be uh, resolved and ministered to. 
Because, God, we really don't want to just sit around and make this like a, the best book club. We really want to encounter you. And if we're going to encounter you, then it's going to be so much more than just getting a cool little phrase. It's about really getting the therapy we need. And so, please do that in this time. Let your word <clears throat> hit more than our heads. No, I let it hit our heads. But let it hit our hearts, too, and our souls, the parts where decisions are made. The parts that actually put the color and the soundtrack behind the way we see the world that influences every decision we make, but also influences every way that we see people and see life and look at the future and look at you and each other, the way that we look at ourselves. So minister, would you please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha, And it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters said to him, Look, Lord, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but to the glory of God, for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister, And Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Well, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Ravi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world, of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. These things he said, and then after that, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. So his disciples, because they're so brilliant, said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought he was speaking about taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, there's always a guy like this in every class, let us also go that we may die with him. So, When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. (coughs) Excuse me. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Uh, Then Martha said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask God, of God he will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Lord, yes, Lord, I I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. 
When she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, Well, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. Some said, some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? There was a certain man, Lazarus of Bethany. In the Gospel of John, Lazarus is introduced here. We don't know that he existed. If all we had read was the Gospel of John, we would never have known he existed until this point. Though he had been mentioned, well, at least the name has been mentioned in one other book, and that is the Gospel of Luke. We read that he's in a place of called Bethany. He's Lazarus of Bethany, the same way that Jesus is called Jesus of Nazareth. A person is identified by his place or by his family. We get that to this day. As a matter of fact, if we're going to be honest, a lot of the names that people carry around are either from being the child of another person, like Johnson, Davidson. That's obviously the son of John, the son of David. That's pretty simple. And then there are other names that come from places. As a matter of fact, I was told by a Polish friend of mine that the name Ski means from the village of. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that's what he told me and I'm just letting you know, don't believe me on anything. Search the scriptures out and check, you know, the background on it. But nonetheless, and some of you will have those names. Your names will actually identify you from your place or your family heritage. Well, that's the case with Jesus and the case with Lazarus. Lazarus, by the way, if you think about it, the Greek and Latin tend to, by the way, add an us at the end of something. Paul is Paulus, for instance. Timothy is Timotheus. So Lazarus, by the way, is the Latinized version of the term Eleazar, which means God our helper. An interesting name, by the way, here. Lazarus, if it weren't for the next two chapters, 11 and 12, and the text in, debatably, in Luke chapter 16, we would never know this guy existed. And yet we would look at him, to be honest, and think of him as one of the closest friends of Jesus. It's strange. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives a parable. And of the 40-something parables that Jesus gives, it's the only parable where he gives a proper name. I mean, all of the other elements, there's this rich man and a poor man, and this guy owes money. There's a king, and he holds a feast for his son. But this is the only one where there's a name given, and the name is Lazarus. Let me read through the story once that Jesus gives. It's in Luke chapter 16. In case you're at your Bibles, open it up to Luke 16, 19. 
We don't read, by the way, of the rich man's name, but it says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar, notice again the term certain, named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Yeah, that's information everyone wants. But it gives you an idea how sad the situation is. But it was that, it was that the beggar died and was carried to the, to angels, by the angels, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. We don't get that whole angels thing with him. And being in torment in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and likewise Lazarus' evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Beside all this, excuse me, there is a great gulf fixed between us so that those who want to pass from here cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Well, then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they may also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to them, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one of them, if, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, it's a strange parable, the only one again with, that has a guy's name, and it's Lazarus, and I find it interesting. What we do know is that Lazarus, at least in that particular story, was poor, he was very ill, and he died, and there was a cry out for him to raise from the dead. I do find that interesting. That happens, by the way, as Jesus is on his way down from, from basically Luke 9, 50, 51, through the middle of Luke 19, is the story of Jesus walking down from Galilee to Jerusalem, ultimately to his execution. That happens before John chapter 11, which means, by the way, that he would have told that story before this situation. Strangely enough, if he had been told of Lazarus's illness while in Galilee, that would mean that he was told of Lazarus's illness, as we have in John 11.1. 1. On his way down, he tells that story and then experiences the end of this story in Luke I'm sorry, in John 11. Interesting thought. Here's where we start this. There's a certain man, obviously Jesus knows him, and his name is Lazarus. He's from Bethany. Bethany, by the way, there's only two people we know mentioned in Bethany. Uh, That's this guy and a guy named Simon the leper. Interesting. Lazarus and leper are the two guys we get in Bethany. And we read here that it's of the town of Mary and Martha. We're familiar with them, of course, Strangely enough, we always think of Martha as the one who quickly complains because she's making sandwiches or something and Martha and Mary's not helping. But we don't actually ever bring up this story where Martha actually is the one who actually shines the greater of the two. And it says, It was Mary, in verse 2, who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, we don't have that story in John yet because it doesn't take place until John 12. So we have to do one of two things with it. We have to either say, well, it actually happened before, but John is, is consciously placing it later in a text for a theme, or that this is what's going to be the result. So let's play with that second idea for a moment. John, writing in retrospect, he's writing in the 90s AD, 
And he's writing in retrospect of this whole thing. And he's recounting these stories. He looks and he goes, I want you to know that after this whole thing is over, Mary is going to break her alabaster jar, which is her bride price, the thing that sweetens the deal. Some of you, by the way, from African cultures, you know what this is like. She is, in essence, taking herself off the market. She's closing her Tinder account. She's wiping out the whole thing. And she is breaking everything and giving it all to Jesus as a complete act of total surrender and worship and praise to Jesus. And that's going to happen in chapter 12, which means that the end result for Mary is going to be one of total worship and praise. Though it is going to be a very rough road to get there. And so... John is kind of throwing that in at the beginning of this. That though this is going to be, if we're going to be careful to say, one of the worst moments in Mary's life, it is going to end up with one of the most beautiful moments in Mary's life. That's going to be testimony for the rest of eternity because God's word never comes back void, nor does it ever end. His word endures forever. So stop for a moment before we go any farther. Moments in your life that are such horrible moments you can't even chronicle the pain almost always will revolve around death if we're going to be honest. The death of a relationship, the death of a person, literally. Could God actually let that happen so that strangely enough it would end up in complete and total praise and prayer? and surrender. You go, but it's so painful. Yeah, it is. He is never for a moment overlooking the fact that this is a horrible time for these girls. In John chapter 11, verse 3, we read about Lazarus. He's the one whom Jesus loves. I think it's interesting because the disciple whom Jesus loved is actually writing the gospel. In John 11, 11, Jesus calls him our friend, which means that the disciples know the guy. As a matter of fact, we'll get, of course, by the end of the text that we've looked at, where they'll say, see how he loved him? So this isn't an issue of, I mean, everybody kind of goes, oh, this guy is a really close friend of Jesus's, and yet he dies. These gals, some of the closest gals that Jesus has mentioned, and by the way, there's at least five Marys in Scripture, other than Mary Magdalene, this Mary... It's really mentioned a great deal because of her. And we always seem to find her at Jesus' feet. And yet he's going to let their brother die for a bit. Martha, by the way, means mistress, an interesting name. Who names their daughter that? Mary, some of us are familiar, Maria, Maris, so forth. Like Mariam of the Old Testament, Moses' sister, means bitter. And because this Mary and Martha are so close with Jesus and this Lazarus who is so close with Jesus, it's important to recognize just because you're close with Jesus doesn't mean you're not going to suffer. Sometimes you go through a really hard time and you... No, let's, be, let's face it. Sometimes we're just stupid and we're jerks and because of that we are going to suffer. You know, you want to go run in front of a car and you get hit. Don't blame God for the broken bones. He jumped in front of the car. And there are times in life where, let's face it, we suffer because we're dumb. 
We earned it. But not every time. And there are times where your pain is going to happen and you could be really close to Jesus while it happens. But the good news is when you're really close to Jesus and that pain happens, well, it's going to end up with real worship. As long as you don't choose to listen to the enemy in it. Verse 3, Therefore the sisters came to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Notice, like any traditional intercession, they don't tell him what to do, but there's an expectation. Hey, you love this guy. Clearly you're going to run to his rescue, right? When Jesus heard that, notice his response in verse 4. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. But Lazarus is going to die. Yeah, he is. It's just not the end of the story. It just is for us often until we keep our eyes on Jesus. It's interesting because when Jesus is confronted with a problem, and let's face it, we're talking about a fatal, life-threatening problem. Our natural response is, let's jump right at whatever it is and stop the discomfort. Let's get at it right away. Let's stop this thing before it gets worse. But what Jesus asks is, what is the end result we're shooting for here? What's the end result? What do we really want to see this end up with? So he says, the sickness is not pros, like towards the end of this thing isn't going to be death. Although strangely, it appears as if the root may be. But the end result is God's glory. Now, please understand Traditionally, our Christian mindset for glory is that God's going to be like this awesome thing and everyone's going to be like, hallelujah, it's going to be such a cool thing. But we're really missing what the term really means. The term is a doxa, and it comes from a word, the chaos, which literally means to seem, like how something appears. In other words, can I say it in its simplest sense? This sickness is not going to be, the, end, the total end result of this thing is not going to be death. That's not the end goal here. The end goal is you are going to see God a little clearer for who he really is. And you're going to see Jesus for who he really is in it. It is often these horrible storms where you actually get to understand a little bit more of who Jesus really is. Do you remember back in... John chapter 6, one I should go before that, Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 8, verse 25, where Jesus puts his disciples in a storm, and they're obedient when they find themselves in it. And they turn to him, and they say, don't you even care we're perishing here? We're going to die from this. Jesus gets up, he calms the storm. Do you remember their response? The response is, who can this be that even the wind and the seas obey him? I think that's an interesting statement. In other words, Jesus allowed the storm and he allowed it to be a big scary one from which they thought they would never live through. So that when he stood up and he slammed this thing down at the end, the response is, wow, I didn't see him that way before this. But I guarantee you they would never see him the same. In John chapter 6, there was a second storm, not the same one. On this one, Jesus isn't in the boat. He's walking on the waves. The storm is below him. 
And in which case, the disciples never say we're going to die from this one. Interesting, the second storm, they actually turn, and it's not about him stopping the storm, but him just getting him to the other side. Please hear me in this. This is part of what happens as we grow in Jesus. The first time we hit one of those storms, we just don't think we're going to make it through. We're like, I don't see how I'm going to survive through this. The pain's too great. It's so overwhelming. But he gets us through it. And at that point, all we're asking is, God, could you take this storm away? Just rip it out, please. Remove it. God, you know what happens if you don't step in right now. But once he gets us through a couple of those storms, now we actually get to the other side and we're like, God, could you just get me to the other side of this storm because there's so much to learn. Verse 5 is one of the hardest verses to swallow. Verse 5 and 6. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, so um, because of that, therefore, because he loved Martha, because he loved Mary, Because he loved Lazarus, when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. What? This is not the kind of love you know, is it? The word loved, we're most familiar with because if we read scripture, you may not know a lot of Greek words, but it's probably one of the first ones you learn. It's agape. Agapeho, actually, here. And it means to be completely selfless. It's to give life to give life. Now, I'd like you to consider this. Someone you really love is, is, is at the brink of death and they're getting worse. And you were God. You'd stop everything and you'd fix that thing right away, wouldn't you? Because we have a really good view of the short picture. We have a real clear image. And what I see is someone's suffering. I don't want them to suffer anymore. Because someone's suffering, all I really want is to stop that suffering. Because doesn't that make sense? But Jesus is like, you are actually going to learn so much more through the suffering than you actually will just from having it removed. When I was 14 years old, I got in this, um, I was teaching martial arts and one of the instructors of, of Aikido he was a real real violent guy uh, <clears throat> sort of you know one of those a few friends like this who needs enemies and he was on he had some ice skates on and he decided we were going to get one, one of those kind of cool bro-man fights which by the way is a literal fight the only difference is you're smiling and as long as you're winning it's like it's a cool bro-man fight until you start losing uh, and in that particular fight friendly thing he comes at me when I'm actually unaware of this whole intention of his, and I'm walking with a pair of shoes that are, no, that are not skates, and they're not built for ice. And he comes at me with a hockey stick. This is a classic Chicago tactic, and he comes at me because he's just going to come at me with this hockey stick. A friend of mine that's with me recognizes that this is so much more than a bro-man high-five, and he throws a hockey stick at me, so I'm at least equipped with another with the same weapon this guy has. I remember I'm 14 years old. Now, as he comes at me, I can see the way that he's approaching me. His skates are straight. He's just going to come straight at me, and he's going to come at me with the stick. And I recognize what he's going to do. 
at least as much as I can surmise. So, I have a plan. We're going to clasp our sticks parallel, straight end to my left, curved end to my right, and I'm going to take that end and shoot it up beneath his jaw because that's what friends do. And uh, the idea is if I knock him out with a single blow, we're kind of done with this thing quickly. Now, it works like a dream. He comes at me, and I grab it, and that stick flies up. The problem is, is I was completely ill-attentive to the other side of the stick. Now, the problem with the other side of the stick is it was curved. And it was curved in my direction. So as I swing that stick into his jaw, the other end scoops me up like a sickle, throwing my knees up in the air, and I land on ice on the corner of my shoulder blade, my right shoulder blade. Now, you're probably aware of the fact ice is terribly unforgiving. It is as unforgiving as the law. It has no bend to it. In which case, I land on the corner of my scapula, my, my shoulder blade, popping my collarbone out three inches. Now, I'm 14, and I'm dumb. I don't even think much of it. I pop up. I'm like, yeah, who the boss now? And I walk away from the situation with this, oh, man, my shoulder's sore. Rough. Sore. For three days, I sleep on that shoulder until I get up, and my hand is numb. I literally cannot feel my hand. And I'm like, that's actually not good, is it? So I have to go to the doctor, which my daughter can tell you is not a place I frequent. And I go there, and the doctor goes, oh, this is not good, this is not good. Apparently, you know, you don't, no one wants a doctor to say that. Apparently what had happened is one of the primary nerves was underneath that rotary cuff, and that's like a, there's a ball on your shoulder, and then there's kind of a little, you know, kind of a like nice little shell thing underneath it. And that's kind of how it rotates. And the nerve had made its way in there. So what would happen is I was, in essence, pinching the nerve. But if I had slept on it another night, at least as he had said, now whether he did this to scare a 14-year-old or whatever, but in the end of it, he says, if I pinched that nerve, I would have lost the arm. That was a bad thing. Now, my hand was numb. Now, there's a part of you that thinks, Awesome. All of the things I could get accomplished because there's no pain in that arm. But I really also didn't have very good uh, function with it either, of course. So I'd be like, hi, how's it going? Oh, sorry. And I'd slap someone in the face by accident. At least that's what I'd tell you. Uh, ultimately, of course, they had to rip out my arm, put in some titanium pins. Uh, it's part of my superhero thing. And there's five of those put in. And they had to replace all of my ligaments and cartilage with nylon webbing. So I basically have parachute material or whatever it is. And anyways, all of that said, and so my arm is strapped like this in 40 to 45 degree weather Celsius in it's humid as anything. And it's basically like taking a shower while standing still, it's, you know, which means that you smell bad. And I'm, and I'm strapped like this for a quite a, it seemed like forever. Uh, and forgive me for the lengthy story. Here's the point of it is that in the end of it all, I was told that I would maybe get 70% of my mobility, maybe as much as 30% of my strength. I mean, which I think, wow, that's a very low estimation as a doctor. Thank you. And, uh, and ultimately, so then, you know, ultimately they're going to take the whole thing off. And I remember the first time they stuck a pin into my finger, the great joy that felt. Because at that moment, what that meant is my hand was alive again. But then came the next part, physical therapy. Now, there are some people who I really think they get into physical therapy because there's masochistic people, sadistic people, I'm sorry. 
They just love inflicting pain. But I'm one of those people that's like, push me on this, because my arm had been strapped like this into my belly, so they had to pull it open like this. And they're like, okay, this is going to take a whole bunch of months. I'm like, no, it's not. What do you mean it's not? Well, you just keep pulling until, you know, until I pass out. So they're going to keep pulling, and they're like, as long as it doesn't tear or rip anything, let's just go for it. All of that to say, needless to say, was not a really enjoyable experience. But it was necessary. That first pain told me this hand was alive, but the rest of the pain after that told me that I was going to get this thing back to working. Now, we live in a world, let's be honest, where pain is always bad. As a matter of fact, pain now is, oh, that person, I mean, I'm, I have my guitar, I'm going onto the train, and that girl took the one seat, you know, where that folds up, right? You know, and there's like, it's blank everywhere else, I'm not bitter, and I'm like, what a pain. And God goes, that's pain for you now? Remember when this was like, give me more? Oh, the wuss I've become. And because of that, your enemy is being in pain. I mean, look at some of you right now. I'm ready. We're going to sing the song. Do you want to build a snowman in a moment? I realize that we lose heat in here or something like that. Don't worry. In a little bit, we'll set Hugo on fire and that will warm us all up. Hear me on this and I'll I'll try to bring it forward, please. Uh, Is that when we hit something that seems like it's discomfort, we just want to stop and just stop the discomfort and stop the pain. But what if that physical therapist had done that? If that physical therapist had said, hey, you know, that looks like it's hurting you. We should just stop. I would not be able to play guitar today. I actually was trying to play initially like this just so that I could, you know. But in the end of it all, I have full mobility, and I can't tell you about the amount of strength, but at least it's working. The whole point of it is is it shouldn't be as able as it is. But thankfully, somebody was willing to work through that pain. Some of you are familiar that last Christmas Eve, I got a really cool Christmas gift, this really cool, like, thing that happened in my head that gave me all kinds of really fun experiences, including massive vertigo. Four days, the world was spinning without control, which is really, I mean, granted, it's spinning, but we're actually kind of accommodated to it. No, not for those four days. And it was the most humbling thing. Of all the things, I've sewn my own knee together. I mean, it's like, but this was the most humbling, because there's nothing you can do to stop it. You just hold your hands out and just wait. It was really quite an experience. But I just love the fact that the doctor who I've been working with, who's the, apparently the head of the department, has been, this isn't about me, but I just, this, but, it, but I have to put myself in it. It's like, he's like, look at, I thought it was interesting, is that when you go through that experience, you stop trusting all the things that balance you, your feet and your hips, your legs and your eyes. I mean, not much you can do about your inner ears, but it's like those things help you kind of go, all right, this is what the reality of the world is like right now. And he's like, you've got to push those things. And I'm like, that's all I needed to hear. So if you ever see me and I'm looking at you and I'm going like this, it isn't because I'm making fun of you. Ooh, see, for instance, yeah. So, and it's like my body's going, I'm trying to go, okay, now that, that, level that off, man. Come on, don't get dizzy. So I do that before we start worship and I can't figure out where my hands are for a moment. Oh, you get over it. The, the whole point of it is, is that it's like, okay, let's push it because the idea of it is, is that's going to make us better. And then we look at this and we go, okay, I'm suffering for a moment, Jesus. Mary and Martha are like, if you don't get here, my brother's dying, Jesus. You've got to get here now. You don't understand how much pain I'm going through. And Jesus is like, I could stop the pain right now. I could do that. But it's a very short goal 
that bears forth very little fruit in the end. Or I could play the long game that's going to make you so much better and you're going to understand me so much better. Sometimes true love waits till it's impossible. Don't miss in verse 6, it says, look, Jesus loved them and because he loved them, he waited. Now understand, for Jesus, as a human being, God in the flesh, wouldn't it be for Jesus the most, he could be selfish in trying to take away that pain. Would that make sense? Because these are people you love. Let's face it, when you love someone and they're suffering, you suffer with them. You may not suffer to the degree they are, but it still hurts. Hey, I would much rather take any pain than watch any of my children or wife in pain. It took me to become a dad to recognize that a greater love is to let your son die on a cross than die yourself. And that's why it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's from the perspective of the father. Because you should thank the Lord for a billion reasons why I'm not God, but that's one of them, because I do not love you enough to let you torture my kid to death to save you. Now, torture me to death? Conceivably, idealistically, yeah. That's, I actually don't have as much of a problem with that. But torture my kids, either of them, even in their worst moment when they're being human, still isn't going to happen. And what if right now you're struggling? There's something going on and it's, maybe it's enduring. Maybe right now you cannot figure out what in the world is going on except for this. The one thing you are really clear on is that it hurts. And it hurts and it hurts. As if somehow you could make sense of it, it would stop hurting. And yet, here's Jesus. And he loves Mary. And he loves Martha. And he loves Lazarus. So he waits. Because Jesus loves me, he often waits. But for me, that seems like in my despair, he's doing nothing. But what he's really doing is he's sowing something deeper in me. He's laying seed for a greater harvest, a harvest that helps me grasp his glory for who he really is. And he's more than just the salve. He's more than just the make-you-feel-better-for-the-moment guy. And Jesus has this way of making things impossible before he steps in so that he really gets glory that you wouldn't have given him before. In 1 Samuel 17, remember, we have a, a champion of Gath named Goliath who steps up. Do you remember the one thing that we know about him physically? What's the one thing? Can anyone bark that out? Yeah, he's really tall. He's really, really big. Which is interesting, because what was the one identifiable trait about Saul, the king of Israel? He was tall. He was head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Let me show you what that looks like. Come here, here you go. We just discovered this today because we put a microphone up. This is heads taller than someone. Hi. We're two-headed. So imagine you have to add shoulders to that. That's another length of that. So imagine that's twice this. And that's... Now, here's the thing. Hugo, you're, I, he was actually about the average height of a Jewish man back in those days. It was roughly five and a half feet tall. So imagine, this is Saul's height. This is the average height of a Jewish guy. 
Okay, does that make sense so far? Which makes it even more fun. Thank you. That makes it even more fun when you realize at the end of Saul's life, he actually tries to disguise himself to go and seek a fortune teller. And it's like, how in the world, let's face it, if the fortune teller is worth anything, how do you, like, you're like minute bull, you know? You're like, the guy that's like seven feet tall, everyone else is five and a half feet tall, and he's going to, how does he disguise himself? Does he walk on his knees? It doesn't matter what he wears. He could wear a chicken costume. The bottom line is he's that much taller, and the gal's like, doesn't recognize that he's the king? Wow, you're remarkably tall. As far as Israel was concerned, he was quite the tall guy until Goliath steps in. And Goliath is another three and a half feet taller than that. In other words, he's actually nearly half the height of Saul added to him. In other words, he's another torso up. That's a big guy. And he is not just improbable, he is impossible in comparison. Because the guy's a trained fighter. So who does God send in? This little runty guy. David. Who's like, look, I took on a bear, I took on a lion. This guy's no threat. He insulted God. He insulted the armies of the living God. And people go, how could he take him down with a stone? Hey, you start talking like that, God will let you fling a marshmallow and take a guy down, let me tell you. In Paul's life, in 2 Corinthians 1.8, I don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Do you know what that means? It means Paul said, that's it, I'm done. Now he didn't, not like I quit. That's like, I'm dead. And it doesn't strike me, Paul doesn't strike me as a drama queen. When we have that storm in chapter 27 of Acts, it said we all despaired of life there. And Paul had already been through a handful of shipwrecks because he tells us that in 2 Corinthians and he had written that before that. And even though he had been in shipwrecks before, he's like, well, I'm dying from this one. In Revelation chapter 13, when the Antichrist steps up, they worship the dragon, give authority to the beast, worship the beast, and they said, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? In other words, they look and they're like, this guy is invincible. And Jesus goes, well, now that you recognize your odds, let me just step in. By the way, it tells us that he knocks him down with his breath and destroys him with the brightness of his coming. Jesus is never on the ropes or down on the mat and they're counting him and he gets up in the middle of it. Jesus goes, here I come to save the day. Boom! And the whole thing's done. There's no big fight there. So listen. Mary and Martha are in a horrible place because they don't understand. But you know what the hard thing is at a moment like that? When you start farming answers, you'll listen to the enemies. And the enemy is going to, f- to throw at you accusations. It will always be accusations. He'll accuse God. He'll accuse the church. He'll accuse Christians. He'll accuse you. He'll accuse your mate. He'll accuse everyone. And you get and you get no comfort from that. All you're doing is you are shoveling that pain at somebody else now who doesn't deserve it. Or even if they think they do deserve it, it's not going to help you. So you're like, you know why I'm like this? 
because of that person. And then that may be relatively true at the beginning, but now the reason you're like that is because you're not letting it go anymore. And you're like, God, I don't understand. You know what's funny? How quickly we abandon what we do understand when we don't understand something else. There was a time within six months where I almost lost all three women that I love the most in, my, in life. I mean, we're not talking about melodrama stuff. We're talking about pulling a car off of an of a 11-year-old girl that's not breathing and her heart's not beating and her eyes are amber and rolled into her head. And I remember because, see, what God has with me that he doesn't with you is he's got a library of MP3 recorded messages that he could play back in my head at any moment. That's my voice speaking. Talking about when you don't understand, lean on what you do. And that's that God is good. And that the end result is going to be good because he works all things to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And I know I'm there. And I realized at a moment like that, I'm like, God, you may not raise my child from the dead, but I trust you. And I don't have to understand. I'm still going to love you. In Psalm 46, verse 5, it says, God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her just at the break of dawn. God is never early. He's just late according to your timetable. Because the moment it gets uncomfortable, I'm, I'm looking to figure out where he is in it. But if you're in a situation right now, when you're, I mean, God brought you here to hear this today. And you're afraid to feel that pain. And you'd rather just be numb. Yet that pain reminds you you're alive like my hand. And you're like, but that means there's a lot of other pain that's coming. Yeah, but you know what? I'm here to let you know, first of all, he'll carry you through that pain and then you'll be able to function on the other side of it. You won't be disabled from it. Because those hard moments, they either refine you or define you. But if they define you, you will always be paralyzed from that from this point on. Do you really want that? So Jesus says, hey, look at you guys, let's go back down to Judea. Now, I wonder if when the Jews, his disciples, had heard them say, hey, Lazarus is sick to the point of death, if they were like, well, Jesus is staying, I'd stay. The last time Jesus was there, and that was in the last chapter, if you remember, they were trying to kill him. So they understand why Jesus wouldn't go back. But Jesus is like, the reason he's not going back is not because he's self-preservation. It's because it's not, hear me on this, it's just not the right time yet. When Jesus turns to his disciples, he says, I'm sorry, when he turns to his brothers, because they're like, hey, there's the feast, why don't you just go down? Nobody that wants to be public hides himself. And he goes, look, your time is always right. Not mine. He says, let's go to Judea again. His disciples said, lately the Jews sought to stone you. You're going to go there again? In other words, Jesus has got work to do, not just with those two girls and Lazarus, but with his students. He knows that he's being scrutinized by the religious leaders and he's being absorbed by his pupils. So he's going to be careful. And he says, look, aren't there 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks at night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And the idea of it is simple. 
Darkness is coming here, Jesus says, but it's the time for him. In other words, look, at you're not going to go one breath before you're supposed to. Jesus, by the way, we would read several times, does something, and yet they didn't catch him or arrest him or whatever because his hour had not yet come. Jesus knew that because in John chapter 2, when mom says they have no wine, he says, what does this concern have to do with me? My hour hasn't come yet. The Jews sought to take him in John chapter 7, but they didn't lay a hand on him because his hour had not come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus spoke in the treasury. They tried to lay hands on him, but his hour hadn't come, so they hadn't gotten him yet. And yet, by the next chapter, Jesus will say, okay, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, for you to see the Son of Man for who he really is. Interesting. You know what Jesus would say as a result of that? He says, walk in the light while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. But when Jesus actually is at that point, he'll say, now, it was daily in your temple, you didn't try to seize me, but now this is your hour, the power of darkness. Jesus knows that's coming. But it's not going to show up early either. And until then, by the way, you're invincible until you're marked to die. But I want you to know, that doesn't mean you're not invincible from being stupid. But God knows every breath you have. But I guarantee you, once that breath is spent, you can't get it back. So make good use of them now. I understand why in Psalm 90 and in Psalm 39, they both say, in essence, teach me to number my days. That I would gain a heart of wisdom, that I would know how frail I am. So he says, look, Lazarus is sleeping. And of course, they don't get that. They're like, well, well if you're sleeping, you'll get better. What do you think you're doing? And he's like, okay, do I have to just come out with it? He's dead. Now, people use these verses, by the way, for something called soul sleep. I don't know if any of you have heard that. The idea is simple. You die and you kind of sleep until Jesus comes back because after all, when he comes back, he's going to call us out of the ground. So we're like, in essence, like pieces of bread laying in the ground waiting to pop up like toast. The problem is, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, and he makes it clear, to be absent of the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no middle ground there. Once you cash in that shell that you're wearing right now of your body, you will stand before Jesus. And Jesus says, look it, I'm glad that I wasn't there for your sakes because I want you to trust me. That's what the word believe means. He goes, strangely enough, hear me on this because we're almost done now. Hear me. What Jesus is saying is, I'm really glad that I just didn't ease the pain at that moment. Although, I remind you, that was a selfless act for Jesus. It wasn't like he enjoys watching you suffer. The same way that I don't think that physical therapist enjoyed watching me suffer, although it's debatable. But in the end of it all, he knew that the end result was going to be better. He knew that he had a goal in mind, and that goal was to get me to that place where I was back in, in, back in some form of athletic form way a few years ago. But the idea is, is that he knew that if he didn't do his job right, I would be permanently limited because he didn't do his thing. But in order for him to be able to get me to that place where I'm not limited, it was going to cause some pain. And Jesus is like, look, at, I'm really glad I wasn't there just kind of making sure Lazarus was just up and fixed at that moment. Because if he was up and fixed at that moment, you wouldn't actually trust me beyond that point. And understand, it's like, hey, Jesus is like the sick healer, and that's as far as he goes in his miracles. And that's where Mary and Martha are going to be. Let's be honest, because they're like, hey, if he had been here, he wouldn't have died. And the rest of the people are like, couldn't if he had kept this guy from dying? That's where they draw the line. Where do you draw the line with Jesus? 
Where you're like, well, that's, his, that's, his, that's about as much as he's going to get. So he's like, look it, I'm glad I wasn't there because what I really want is for you to believe. I really want you to trust me. And right now, this is as far as your trust goes. Now, he may not bring that person back from the dead for you. He may not restore that relationship. He may not bring things back that you think you should have coming back to you. But if he doesn't bring you back there, then he's going to carry you through it. And you go, well, that just sounds heartless. Actually, to be honest, that's actually hopeful. Because if Jesus had to keep restoring those things, then you'd never grow. And he goes, look at It's time for us to go to him. He's going to discover that he's been in the tomb for four days, which means he doesn't even know that. But the father said, Jesus, I need you to be selfless right now, and I need you to wait. You know those girls are suffering. You know that people are going to be crying all over that place. But I need you to be selfless with me because I need you to wait. Because we have a better plan. And the plan, they're going to trust you beyond where they do right now. And in between that, and please hear me because we get to close on this, but please hear me. We get to this place in between where we really struggle in our faith. Let's just be honest. Because on this side, we trusted it up to this point. But Jesus has to take us beyond that point. And beyond that point, we don't trust him because that was to our point. So it's like, all right, Jesus, you've got to fix this relationship. You've got to bring this money back. You've got to fix this thing. You've got to do whatever this thing is. And Jesus is like, or else what? Or else what? You're like, you won't trust me anymore? Or else what? I'm not powerful enough anymore? Or else... Does Jesus really have to fit into my logic for me to trust him? Well, then, to be honest, Jesus isn't my Lord. My, my logic is. But when he's beyond what I trust, which is exactly what Proverbs 3 told me to do, is to not lean on my own understanding, I can actually say, you know what, I don't have to understand this to trust you. Like, I'm glad I wasn't there at this moment, because if I had... And I maybe imagine Jesus, like if I was there, to be honest, I might have even felt like caving. I would have totally felt like caving. I would have watched two people that I love cry, and all I would want to do was ease that pain. I'm glad I wasn't there for you guys too, though. Because I imagine if I were there and I didn't do this, if I wasn't responding immediately and you guys were there, you guys would have crawled all on top of me and gone, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you taking care of this situation? What's the problem? Because that's what, everyone, what Jesus is going to get from everyone, isn't he? He's going to get it from Martha, he's going to get it from Mary, and he's going to get it from the rest of the people. Come on, what's wrong with you? Why, don't you? why didn't you do it? Why didn't you do it? What's wrong? In other words, we've gathered quite a crowd of people accusing Jesus. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus is like, if I had been here, he still would have died because that is actually what the plan is here for this. And get it. In other words, let's be honest. And you can see why we can't go very far with this right now. Because we really need this. Because at that moment when you give God a deadline and it, and it passes, it's easy to assume he's not there, right? If you had been here, if you were really here, this wouldn't have happened now, who do you think is saying that to you? It's the accuser. God, where are you? I don't get this. Where are you? This person isn't repenting. The situation isn't improving. 
Where are you? Because if you would be here, I would just assume this whole thing would get fixed like this. How are they still running into that direction? How are they still not coming to their senses and realizing I'm right and they're wrong and they need to repent so we can become friends again? I mean, think of the things. And let's face it, at those moments, it really sucks. It hurts so bad. And you're like, if it hurts like this, how could it hurt like this and you be here? It's like, because this isn't the end. This is just the root. Imagine when you're about to give birth and there all that pain happens. You're like, well, if God, if you're here, clearly there won't be any pain. The pain is still there for a reason. But it's not the end. It's just the root. And I'm here to let you know that no matter what the situation is you're going through, and you've already decided how he should fix it. He's the master of the end game, so he knows how to fix it. Strangely enough, for your benefit. So you'll trust him and see him more clearly for who he really is. But that doesn't mean it's going to be easy on the route there, but I will say this. If you know it's not going to be easy, you better cling to him for the comfort you need through that time. So imagine this. The only comfort you're going to get is from a God who knows what the end result is going to be. And if you want to accuse him, you're removing yourself from the only comfort you could possibly have. Because let's face it, even people will jump in with you. Let's be honest. They'll be like, oh, yeah, what's up with God? He should have totally done this by now. And you, know, and you realize you can gather a whole crowd of people to accuse God, and you're removing the only person who actually has the comfort and understanding of where this is going to end up if you just hold on. And what Mary and Martha and the people think is death's the end. Could you understand why Jesus is going to have to conquer this? Do you understand why Jesus had to take our sins to the grave and conquer that to show you that even death is not a threat to him? Well, these girls have a lot to learn. And you know what? Of all of the witnesses, Jesus heals a man born blind, and that was the biggest miracle they had seen, even though he had raised people from the dead before this point, but not anyone who's been dead for four days. By this point, he's already decomposing. And you can see Jesus going, oh, oh yeah, he's past his sell-by date. Clearly by this point, there's no possible way for what? The God that's actually going to reassemble all of your cells when he resurrects the just and the unjust? I've watched sincerely, and we're going to close this, but now we, I watched sincerely the majority of my close friends in my teen years die. And I'll be fair to say that at least half of them I've seen die in front of me. And I'm not just melodramaing here, I'm being honest. And it teaches you because I didn't know Jesus through that time, not to care. You numb yourself because you think, well, how could I possibly care for someone? They're just going to leave anyways, right? Now, you don't consciously think that. Maybe you do. I don't. I just, you, it's just a survival mechanism, and you learn how to numb yourself. But you know what's crazy is you kill yourself to do that. You can't live that way. And before I knew Jesus, I was not living but I remember when he started ripping open those parts and how painful that was. 
but how hopeful it was too. Because I, I knew that he was making alive parts that I had killed. And if it wasn't for that, I would never have been a dad. I would never have been a husband and I would never have been a pastor. Not at least one you should in any way want to be near. I'd be like, you know, discipleship by physical abuse. Yeah? Some people, they could probably use it, but I'm not the guy for that. And I just want to say, clearly the Lord brought you in the week before Christmas Eve for you to sit here and shiver to hear this message. Why do you think that is? But please understand, the Lord isn't going to make you live in it. He's going to carry you through it. So stop building a house there and accusing him and removing yourself of the one comfort. The one person who actually knows what's on the other side. Because even death itself is a corridor. And Jesus would take all your sins and mind to the cross and die there. Because he knew it wasn't the end. Just the end of that. When he rose again, he offers a new life. And that's where he wants to take you. The problem is you can't have a resurrected life without letting the old one die. So I just want to pray for you and I want to pray for me. I want to pray for deafness, holy deafness to the accuser. The accuser who's going to try to make you hate people, hate God, hate church. And and let's be honest, where you feel like you have a right to do something stupid even to yourself. Am I the only person in the room that that happens? You get that point where like, I can just do something stupid, it doesn't really matter because, you know, I've bought in all those lies. Like, that sounds intelligent. Pull myself out of fellowship. I'll numb myself. I'll kill my heart so that nobody has to suffer. So I don't have to suffer. It's really not about you, although I can convince myself of it. But on the other side of that is a person that will be able to love people deeper because they understand God deeper in a way they couldn't had they not been taken to this. And if you're going through some really rough thing right now, I just want to pray for you. You don't have to tell me what it is because we're just going to stay where we have to pray, but clearly you're here for this reason. I'm sure others as well. But that we would be deaf to the enemy and that the Holy Spirit would remind us the things we actually really know, even though it doesn't seem to reconcile with our circumstances. that we can actually get through this. Because on the other side of it, it's going to be you sitting on this proverbial stool telling someone else that doesn't understand. And you're like, I wouldn't expect you to understand. I didn't understand. But I'll tell you what I did understand, that somehow God was bigger and he still cared and he still loved me. But when he starts opening our hearts, it's going to hurt. But is it worth it to heal? I think so. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord. 
think there's parts of me that just feel like we've been through the shredder just to read these first 16 verses. Lord, I, I know that. You know every pain that we're and every struggle. Everything that's going on in our lives right now that just does not make sense. The disappointments and the the places where we feel it's some form of uh, like it's some form of survival tactic mechanism to to numb ourselves when when we really and I know our bodies do that kind of same thing when it when trauma inflicts where we get into these particular modes where we get into shock and we don't feel the pain for the moment because we need to get through it to get out of the situation so that the body can heal. And it's in that healing that we feel the pain again. And, and Lord, for some of us, we're kind of in this place where we'd rather be in this perpetual state of shock, but then the healing doesn't happen. And somehow we, we're afraid of that pain. We're afraid of what would happen if we actually had to confront the realities that that pain in, speaks of. And, and we read here, Jesus, because you loved them, you waited. But you didn't, we don't read that until you, you said, this end is not death. This is, the end of this is not for you to die. The end of this is not for you to numb yourself to death and to kill your heart and to, to darken all of those things. The end is that we'd understand you better. But somewhere in that root, the enemy is constantly trying to actually reveal a different side of you that doesn't really exist. This mean, heartless, negligent part somewhere, as if any of that could possibly be true. So forgive us for where we listen at all and forgive us even more where we'd actually even entertain those thoughts. And just because we're hurting does not mean you're not there. And just because it's not happening the way we anticipated it should does not mean you're not there, but rather you're going to carry us through it to take us to a better understanding of you and to a place where we are more equipped to serve others, not crippled by the event. And I confess to you, there are things we go through and Without you, they would be crippling. They would be completely disabling. But Jesus, you tell us that when the right time comes, what you do will be so profound that all we could do left is trust you. Forgive us for where time becomes the nagging entity and we're like, why are you waiting? Where are you? And we may not be able to see your goodness in moments. So we cannot lean on what we see. But faith is the evidence of things not seen. So I pray, Lord, even as we started this, by praying for your therapy, 
perform that therapy on our hearts and by the power of your Holy Spirit, maybe, well, not even maybe, penetrate places maybe that we've forbidden in times past because of the pain we've experienced through some situation or situations or are experiencing right now. That your Holy Spirit would remind us of the things you've spoken to us, Jesus, and the truths that are undeniable if we're honest and are unchangeable, and that these circumstances, though they appear to be contrary, they still do not negate. Please, Lord, bring bring life back, hope back, peace back, which should not be endemic by circumstances always being our way but rather by being convinced you are everything you say you are and by trusting you. Your plans are still to give us a future and a hope. To, not, to bless, not curse. And you're going to work it to our good even if it doesn't feel so good in the route to it working to our good. I pray today would be a day of ridiculous healing. And we walk out of here different. So please pull us out of our emotional wheelchairs. Bid our legs to walk. Put the clay upon our eyes and open them for the first time in maybe quite a while. And stir up hope in our hearts that we haven't seen in a while. Jesus, if you could take all of the sins of the entire world in all of its history to the cross and die there with that weight upon your shoulders, be buried and just like your scripture promised, the third day rise again. And how can I not trust you, Lord, with the weight that seems to be on my shoulders that clearly is ill-fitting and too heavy so it's not mine to bear? I want to lay it at your feet and let you give me the new life you intend that isn't encumbered by those things, but new and alive. Revive us, God. Revive that hope, revive that love, revive that peace, revive that joy as we embrace your grace. Because we can't do this on our own. So silence us from the enemy and open us up to you and be our comfort and get us to the other side, we pray. In Jesus, in your name we pray.